Hey, Housing News listeners. This is Alison O'Lloyd. I'm a reporter on Housing Wire's editorial team, and I'm also the producer of this weekly podcast. Today, I'm bringing you episode three of season two, which features Gary Beasley, the CEO and co-founder of Roofstock. This week, Housing Wire's CEO and president, Clayton Collins, sits down with Gary to discuss Roofstock's evolution throughout the years, as well as America's single-family rental market, which Beasley says continues to attract more and more institutional capital. But before we listen, Clayton will bring you a word from our sponsor. With interest rates at historical lows, refinances are booming. How do you win this business? It's simple, lower the MI premium for your borrower. The newest feature of Archer's innovative RateStar platform, the RateStar Refinance Retention Program makes it possible. Eligible borrowers with loans already insured by ArchMI can refinance into new loans with a lower MI premium. Give your refi customers a better deal. If you'd like to learn more about how RateStar powers possibilities, visit archmi.com forward slash RateStar Refi. We're also really proud to share that Housing Wire podcasts are now part of the Industry Syndicate. The Industry Syndicate has launched a podcast app made for real estate and mortgage pros by real estate and mortgage pros. Download the app from Apple or Google and join the community today. Thank you for listening. And here's episode three of the Housing News Podcast. I'm really excited today to welcome a, a, a really interesting guest, uh, Gary Beasley, the uh, CEO and co-founder of Roofstock. Gary, welcome to the Housing News Podcast. Thanks, Clayton. Great to be here. <laughs> I, uh, I always love talking to guests. I've actually had the pleasure of, of meeting in person, and, uh, and I know we've met a few times at, at different conferences, but uh, I really enjoyed the opportunity to attend your, your grand opening of your new office in Dallas a few months back. Was that, in, was that June, July? I can't, I can't remember, but I know it was, a, it was a really exciting grand opening. Yep. No, it was just a couple months ago. Yeah. It was great to, great to see you, and that office has worked out, worked out great. We're, we're ending up using it for a lot more than we initially thought. We, we initially thought it was just going to be our property management operation, but we're actually discovering Dallas is a wonderful place to build a business, and so we're really making that a pretty significant operation and hiring a lot of functions out of there. So it's, it's working out great. Well, it's a, it's a gorgeous space. I know the, the team members that I met there are really excited about what you're, uh, what you're up to in the Dallas market. Um, and it's certainly, I think the space itself inspired a lot of decisions that I think uh, we're going to adopt at Housing Wire as we uh, look at larger and better office space in the future. So uh, thanks for letting us come along for a little inspiration. Great. Um, so, so jumping into the show, Gary, I, after attending that grand opening, uh, I heard your, your founding story and I thought like, if anything, the housing lawyer audience needs to know a little bit more about Roostock and I like starting with the founding story and your, the roots of the business would just be a really interesting way to start the show. And then we can, we can jump into some of the, the broader SFR and, and uh, rental and investment, um, topics from there. But I'd love to start out with, uh, with the story of Roostock. Sure. So I most recently, as you know, Clayton, I was running a public REIT at the time was called Starwood Waypoint Residential Trust. Uh, I started buying homes during the downturn in 2009, 2010 with some partners and figured out um, how to build a platform to not only acquire, but, but renovate and manage homes at scale uh, as investment properties we ended up building a decent sized platform and went public in 2014 as a REIT. 
and I was running that for a while. And uh, one of the things I realized about myself was what I think I'm good at is building things more than maintaining them. And so I liked the process of building the company, taking it public. And I was, it was less interesting to me to just run a stabilized business. And so when um, we started thinking about the idea for Roofstock, it was really born out of pain, the, some of the pain points that uh, Gregor Watson, who was my initial co-founder, and I started um, uh, talking about. And it was really both on the, on the buy side and the sell side. So it was very difficult to uh, sell homes that had tenants in them already. And what we, what we realized was if we could figure out a way to very efficiently uh, provide a platform that would allow homes to trade without having to vacate them, it could be a lot more efficient. We could do it faster. Uh, it could be uh, cheaper and just a better solution. And we could actually increase liquidity in, in, the, in that segment of the real estate market. Um, and so that's what, we, uh, that's what we did. And then on the buy side, we also surmised that investors would love to buy homes that are already cash flowing and have tenants in them. And so what we needed to do is figure out how to solve those problems and you know, figure out how to certify the homes, certify the tenants and certify local property managers so we could break down those geographic barriers to real estate investing. And you could be sitting here in the Bay Area or in New York or Chicago, Boston, Beijing, London, buying homes in Dallas or Orlando or, or Phoenix. And so by, by solving that last mile of, of um, partnering with local property managers, certifying the homes themselves and, and, um, and the tenants, we were able to cr create that marketplace where you could, you could actually do it from anywhere. So we're really kind of separating operations from investing and that allows us to break down those geographic barriers. And so uh, we raised um, uh, some venture capital back in uh, May of 2015 and I, I left my my job running the REIT and uh, we started to build a team and build a product and which we then launched in uh, early 2016 as, as Roofstock. And so uh, a little over three years since the official launch in 2016, a little over four since your, your first round in, in 2015, what's changed yeah. in the business model and what's changed in the strategy in that time? Well, you know, it's interesting. We, from the very beginning, um, we had envisioned this to be a marketplace and transaction platform for investors that would ultimately be global in nature. We, we started though with single family rental homes in the US and that's, so that was the initial vision of, for the first, first few years, let's just focus on this niche, which is about a $3 trillion segment, by the way. It's a pretty good sized portion of the housing market. Um, but then over time, what we're looking at is not only bringing in money from, from international investors, but also broadening our product suite, we'll, we'll be looking to grow beyond pure single family rental to short term rentals to small multifamily, all using our same platform. Now that we have this marketplace built, there are a lot of commonalities to different types of real estate transactions. So, so really, I think what's evolved is we started as a relatively straightforward marketplace, just, just bringing uh, buyers and sellers of leased homes together. And what we've evolved to is now a platform that can cater to both kind of experienced investors who want to be somewhat involved in the transactions, but also now our platform caters to passive investors who want to just allocate capital to the space, whether it's a, 
an individual retail investor who wants to put $5,000 to work, they can now buy a share of a home because we figured out how to securitize an individual home. Um, and that was really in response to learnings that we, that we got from our customer base as, as we built out our marketplace, all the way up to large institutional investors who might want to put $500 million or more through the platform and have us uh, build a bespoke portfolio for them and manage it and sort of everything in between. So it's really become a full stack solution. And I kind of has started to describe it as the real estate investment cloud, where if you have capital and a, and a desire to get direct real estate exposure, no matter what level of experience you are or type of investor, we have a product that we could uh, direct you to and help you with. Now, you mentioned that the Dallas office started as a potentially a property management hub. Where does property management play into the, into the real estate investing cloud? Is that something that's more yeah. of a service for your, your institutional investors that want to put $500 million or more to work? Yeah. Or is that part of the, the fractional ownership game? How does it's, that? Um... Yeah, it's both, actually. Okay. So um, think about us as uh, Street Lane Homes, which is our property manager. Um, they will manage for institutional accounts as well as Roofstock One, which is our, our fractionalized, our security product. Uh, we're not currently doing retail property management. There, there we're partnering with about 50 different local property managers who we certify and negotiate uh, service level agreements with and things like that. So what we're focusing on with Street Lane is institutional level property management and, and our Roofstock One. Okay, but it's perfect. it's critical. It's a critical offering to to solve that, uh, you know, the equation for passive investors who don't want to do their own property management. We needed to offer that to offer the full stack solution that we currently do. Without that, we would have continued to just cater to the incumbent institutional players who have their own management, as well as our retail marketplace, where we're pairing our our clients with um, local property managers who are doing that work. But to get to that fully passive experience, we needed to actually vertically integrate into the property management side. So with Streetlane, are there, um, if there's markets where you don't have on the ground coverage or, or geographic coverage or Streetlane, is that when you're referring off to, uh, to partners or is Streetlane kind of grown uh, coast to coast at this point? So right now, uh, Street Lane, it, it used to be in more markets than it is, but it's based in Dallas and it's a hub and spoke. Uh, model so we could spin that up uh, as necessary within about 30 to 45 days we could be in a new city live um, so um, we are you know as we add institutional business and get scale in a lot of these new markets we're we're um, lighting up street lane as, as an operator in the markets where we're just doing the retail business that's where we're working with local uh, local property managers all right makes a lot of sense all right. Well, thanks for giving us that background on, on the business and how things have evolved a bit since you, you founded the company uh, three and a half, four years ago. I'd, I'd love to get into some of the, the, the broader SFR market. And uh, while, while we have you and your, your expertise here, would uh, love to just ask you a really high level question is uh, what is the current state of single family rental? Uh, I feel like I'm giving a state of the union address here. This, the state of the single family rental union is strong. Clayton. We have, we have the one and only Gary Beasley. Of course, we're going to give you the, the <laughs> I, I, I would say it's actually very strong. And, um, the, the market has, has matured a lot, uh, over the last few years. So you have 
the public companies trading at all-time highs, which means they're finally getting rewarded by public investors um, with the model being validated. I think we've got a point now where operations have been largely proven out. There's a lot of capital searching for a home in single-family rental homes. And I think it's because homes as an investment have a lot of interesting characteristics, particularly where we are in the real estate cycle. If you remember, during the last downturn, which was 2007 to 2011, prices dropped every year, but rents of single-family rental homes never did. So throughout that entire period, yields actually expanded for investors coming in throughout that time. And so that's not lost on investors now. Obviously, we're pretty late in this economic expansion. We're 10 years in uh, to, and um, not quite that far into the real estate cycle, but, but 10 years into this economic expansion, at some point there will be a correction. Uh, what, type, what the shape of that is, nobody knows. No one expects it to be like the last one, which was a credit bubble. But let's say that, that prices correct a little bit. You now have investors who are willing to buy homes on a yield basis that will step in with even modest price declines and support these homes that are in this you know, kind of seventy-five dollars to $250,000 range, which is kind of where we traffic. And it provides a lot of, there's a lot of support to that part of the market. So I think you'll see perhaps less uh, downside risk this time because investors can help can help stabilize it. So um, I think the, the market's maturing. I think it will continue to attract more and more institutional capital. And we're only 2% institutionally owned as an asset class of those 16 million homes. There's roughly 300,000 owned by large institutions. You compare that to multifamily, it's probably 40%. So um, I don't see that you know, 40% of the rental home stock being owned by investors, but could it be, could it be 5%? Could it get to you know, 10% over time? Perhaps, I think it will certainly continue to grow beyond the, the 2% it's at today. Yeah, that's an incredible stat. I, um, I, I think the, the perception is that institutional ownership has been significantly larger than 2%, uh, especially with a lot of the, the headlines that have come out of the, the last decade since the financial crisis. And uh, we, we know that uh, the single family rental market has, has always been there, but it seems like coming out of the financial crisis with the amount of inventory that became available um, through through REO that the the um, that, that institutional component would be much larger. And yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. It's definitely been um, the the headline over the last number of years. But I think sometimes the institutional capital that 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 flowed into the space, it's um, it, it can get a little bit of a bad a bad rap, even though it really was fundamentally what what put a floor in the housing market. Mm-hmm. Right. But in 2012, at the very beginning, that's when a lot of the institutional capital flowed in. And if you look at all the charts, that's when housing prices started to increase again after five years of decline. And the, the issue was these institutional investors were ready, willing and able to put capital into homes that needed to be renovated. And you didn't have the average mom and pop investor buying homes off the courthouse steps that needed uh, to be, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars worth of work, and so that money had to come from somewhere, and so I, I do think that that, you know, that's a, a, a positive part of this whole single-family rental industry is that it did really help rescue the housing market, and 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 today we went from 
we went from 0% institutional ownership a decade ago to about 2% today. So it's still quite small. But, but I think what, what people are finding is um, some of these larger platforms that are well capitalized actually have the money to maintain the homes well, provide good customer service, 24-7 response on repair and maintenance, things like that, which if, if, if a home is self-managed or managed by a very small manager, they may or may not get that level of service. So, so it is something I, when I, I read a lot of the press and, and it's, it's kind of easy to, to beat up the large institutional owners because nobody's perfect and they are obviously in it to make a profit as investors. But I do think sometimes we overlook some of the benefits that that uh, professional capital has, has brought um, to the housing market and, and creating a real stock of high quality and affordable rental product. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, on the topic of professional capital, uh, our team at Housing Wire has covered some reports that more home builders are stepping up to the plate and becoming, um, are, are building build to rent properties. And we've covered that, that Toll Brother has announced a commitment of 60 million into a $400 million venture to build homes specifically for rent in, in seven major U.S. cities. Lunar is uh, involved in a similar project. Clayton Homes is stepping up in a similar project. How is the build to rent, I don't know if it's worth calling a movement quite yet, but build to rent trend impacting the, the SFR market? It's definitely uh, impacting it. And, and it, you can see why. It, it's um, One, it's creating demand for homes that aren't being purchased by end users for various reasons, right? It's, um, there are plenty of people who could afford the rent on a brand new $300,000 home but not as many people who, could, who would qualify, whether it's because of lack of down payment money, student loan debt, et cetera. So what's happening is investors are, are stepping in and, and filling that void and buying the homes from the home builders and renting them out to, to residents. And so it's a bit like a distributed apartment building is kind of how you sort of think about it. Um, an investor owns the real estate and, and rents it out. And so for, I think what the, the home builders are realizing is they could either slow their velocity of sales or they could view the, the uh, investors who want to buy homes to rent them out as an important uh, channel, a, a kind of a, a channel of demand. And some, it's interesting, there are different schools of thought on the best way to do it. Sometimes what's happening is build to rent buyers are buying, say, the last 10 or 15% of a development and, and turning those into rentals so, so the developer can close out, sell the model homes and move on to the next project. Sometimes they might be buying the first 10% or 15% so the builder can get it financed and get a project started. So that could be a catalyst for a project. And sometimes it could be the whole project. So now you're starting to see for the first time communities of two or 300 homes being built specifically with amenities, centralized amenities and things like that. Very much like an apartment development with all the homes uh, to be rented out. And that may be you know, owned by that developer, by the builder, or it may be being being prepared and sold to an investor who will own it that way. And there are different groups who prefer uh, different styles and different types of investing there. But it's definitely, there's some advantages to the build to rent product. Obviously it's new product. So it tends to rent quite well. The repair and maintenance tends to be lower. 
um, you know, it's kind of state of the art amenities and all that. And uh, in, once those projects be uh, start getting leased up, are you seeing any of that inventory flow to to Roofstock, or is it still it's kind of new enough where it's still sitting with the uh, with the builder? Yeah, so we we are um, we are we've we've definitely sold a number of build to rent homes through our marketplace, and um, there's a lot of client demand for it because people like the fact that it's new product. It shows shows really well. Um, we have purchased some new homes in our Roofstock One um, kind of fractional mm-hmm. product, and those have sold quite quite well as well because again they they show well and they're they're just brand new homes. Um, and what I've also discovered is a lot of uh, international investors, in particular from Asia, prefer new product, and so they're, they're, if they're going to buy a home over here. Um, much more inclined to buy newer product versus uh, older product, even though the older product may have higher yield or maybe in a more central location. Um, some people just prefer the fact that it's, that it's brand new. Is the, uh, and we've covered some stories about the, the aging housing stock and how that's definitely impacting the mortgage market. And there's been more and more deals falling through an inspection stage. Is the aging housing stock a concern for the single family rental market, or is that a, a, a value add opportunity that uh, investors are actually getting excited about? I think it's more the latter, actually, um, because that is where um, you can add value and create value in the process buying homes. It's it's not nearly like it was during the downturn when so many of those homes were coming out of foreclosure and were really neglected. You know, now it's just more homes with normal wear and tear, right, that um, uh, can be purchased and, and renovated to a state-of-the-art spec and, and then leased out. So uh, most of the larger operators and even some of the smaller ones have really good kind of integrated operations now to do that acquisition, renovation, lease up, and management. So I think it does present an opportunity and it, and it, it allows um, uh, people to live in, in high-quality housing that where the the actual capital is being provided by investors as opposed to people feeling like they need to buy the homes themselves and then do do their own renovations I think that's that's one of the one of the things that I've come across recently in in, in interviewing a lot of customers and and doing looking at research but for example Millennials uh, one study that I read recently said 60 uh, almost two-thirds of um, Millennials experience some level of, of remorse when they buy homes, buyer's remorse. And he started scratching my head, so well, why would that be? And it turns out that the total cost of ownership is always higher. You buy the home, it turns out it actually needs work that you kind of didn't realize. Um, you, you, kind of, you bought in an area that you didn't love because that's where you can afford, and then you bought less house than you really need. And, and whereas a lot of these millennials look at their friends who are renting, nicer, bigger places in better areas, and they have that flexibility to move for another job or if they get married or have a kid or whatever, want to get a dog, they can sort of move around. So, so it, it, it's interesting because I think the, the other stat I saw was today only about 20% of millennials want to buy a house right now, whereas four or five years ago, that was like 40%. So there's less of a desire to do it immediately. I think over the long term, probably about the same number want to own a home, but it's just being delayed 
uh, six, seven, eight years as to when they actually are in a position, feel like they're in a position to want to buy. Now, does that stat of 20% wanting to buy a home kind of reference more the, the primary home? Is there still yeah. interest in that exposure to real estate? I feel like I've seen some, I've seen some stats, likely from Roofstock about the, uh, the, the anecdotal millennial who doesn't want to buy in San Francisco, but uh, still wants exposure to the, the real estate market. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, we have, uh, well, right now about 80% of our, of the users of our, on our site of our, our visitors are below the age of 45. So we, it's in an, and a, a big chunk, I think 52% are probably below the age of 35. Um, so oh, there's a, a huge interest um, in, 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 we're selling an awful lot of homes to millennials who are putting the 20 or $30,000 down that they need to buy a, you know, a hundred thousand dollar home in a Southeastern or Midwestern market and getting on the property ownership bandwagon. It's just, they're separating where they live from where they own. And so there's, there, it's not as if there isn't a love for real estate. I think it, when you, when you look at millennials in particular, they look at real estate as something that they trust a lot more than say the stock market. Um, they're very jaded about the stock market. Um, but, um, it's also, if you live in an expensive place, it's very hard to buy. And so if you could rent in a place where your job is and buy in a place where you could actually afford and you could build equity, it's just, we're, we're, we've figured out a way to kind of disengage, um, you know, having to invest in where you're living to saying, geez, I could be buying homes or shares of homes throughout the country in areas that are uncorrelated to where I live and work. And um, so that, that's the, that's what we're seeing on Roofstock. Over 90% of our, of our retail buyers are buying over 250 miles from where they live. And 75% of them are first time real estate investors. Now, not all of them are renters, but it's the first time they bought an investment property, but a lot of them actually are renters. So it's, it's quite fascinating. That's, that's really interesting. Okay. So you said 90% over 200 are buying over 250 miles away from where they live. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so you got to remember on our platform, the big bet was, will people buy hundred thousand dollar items sight unseen online? Because no one had ever done that before. And it, it turns out that yes, uh, they will. Uh, but you have to do a lot of things, right? You have to build trust. You have to stand behind the transaction. We have a 30 day money back guarantee and a rent guarantee. And, and so we, we work very, very hard at providing great customer service because um, you have to build trust in a, in a brand. Building marketplaces is really challenging. You have to get the supply and demand calibrated correctly and you, you have to get people to trust you. And it takes time you know, to do that. And it's kind of one customer at a time. That's awesome. So I want to tie this back to the kind of the broader housing economy and, and, and our coverage with, with a, a lion's share of our audience being mortgage and real estate professionals. Then a lot of coverage about uh, interest rates being at historic lows, um, purchase mortgage and refi activity has been hot to, to say the least, uh, but affordability continues to be a concern. Um, how are rate conditions impacting the SFR market? And, uh, and do you watch interest rates when you're, when you're, you're making decisions on, on growth projections or, or anticipated uh, transaction volume on the platform? Yeah, so I mean, again, interest rates, fascinating topic. Um, it, it feels, no one knows, right? But it feels like rates are likely to remain low for a while, just given 
what's going on globally, just kind of the lack of global growth. So to me, it's sort of become priced into the market that rates are going to be low for a while. And I think that's in a way that's probably a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that's probably likely to be the case. So what does that mean? Um, rates are low and you can get accretive leverage, meaning your, your absolute return on a lot of these rental properties on an unlevered basis is greater than your, your debt cost. And so leverage can be quite accretive. That tends to support continued price growth and certainly price support uh, for, for housing, uh, whether it is investment properties or properties to live in. I do see the, the rate of home price appreciation slowing. And I think rates being low is going to keep the prices from declining, likely. Uh, but I could see the rate of growth going from what was 5 6% a year down to you know, 2 3% a year in a lot of these markets. Um, but, but as an investor coming in today, even if you're only getting um, 2 or 3% absolute price growth on the asset, if you're using leverage, and you're getting a nice current return, you can still get a nice total return on your real estate investment coming in at this point in the cycle, even with much more modest uh, price appreciation. And that's one of the things that's attracting so much capital to the space. Do you want to buy you know, an, an office building with all the disruptions going on in the office market? Do you want to buy a retail? Do you want to buy a shopping mall that you know, is being dis disrupted by online uh, competitors? Do you want to, you know, you get kind of, do you want to buy self storage, which could be, you know, being disrupted by some of these, these uh, technology based models with on demand storage. You look through this and you say, well, what is the one area where values are still pretty fair? The yields look attractive. There's limited supply coming online and there's huge demand in terms of household formation and just fundamental demand for the product single family rental sort of checks, it checks all those boxes. And so you have, you have pe people coming at it from all sides, home builders looking at the space, as you pointed out, you've got apartment groups now looking at single family rental homes as perhaps a way to grow their business. You have institutional investors who have never invested in housing before or have just invested in apartments saying, how do I invest in homes? Uh, because this is kind of interesting. It's kind of like an apartment that's already mapped for condo. I could sell those homes off to owner occupants or to other investors, or I could own them for yield. So it's got a lot of interesting characteristics. Well, Gary, thank you so much for your time today. I think this was an excellent way to start off our season two of the housing news podcast. Uh, this SFR market has been an area of particular interest for me and, uh, and a lot of our audience members. So really appreciate the context and, uh, and for giving us a chance to learn a little more about Roofstock. Well, happy to do it, Clayton. Look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Gary. Right. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Housing News Podcast. Join us next week for the fourth episode.